I do believe that through art, through experiences of beauty, that we will feel more and we will be better and more compassionate neighbours. The Urban Exodus podcast shares the wisdom, wit, and stories of those who decided to embark on the road less traveled to pursue their own interpretation of the good life. Small business owners, change makers, artists, farmers, and more working towards building a better future for themselves and their fellow citizens. The people I've met through this project give me energy and hope for a better future. May their inspirational words and practical advice embolden and guide you on your own journey. This podcast is for country dreamers, rural folk, and urban dwellers alike who want to feel more connected to the natural world and the purpose and choices in their lives. I'm Melissa Hessler. Welcome to the Urban Exodus. Urban Exodus is a labor of love and is only made possible by listener support. To support our programming, please consider making a listener contribution or joining our Patreon community for access to bonus features, rapid-fire interviews, videos, and so much more. I'm excited to invite you to my conversation with Sig Harvey. Sig is an award-winning fine art and commercial photographer. She has published five sold-out books, and her photographs are in the permanent collections of museums across the world. Sig and her partner bought a crumbling farmhouse in Midcoast, Maine in 2007, and they moved there full-time in 2011. She left a tenured track teaching photography at Leslie University in Boston to pursue her artistic practice full-time. While she had established the beginnings of her career in the city, the high cost of living was a barrier. It didn't give her the time or space that she needed to really explore her voice, nor did it provide her with the freedom within her days to work on making her own work. In our conversation, we speak about the steps she took to build a thriving fine art career in a small town, advice for emerging artists on ways to get their work noticed, the power of art to expose the difficult truths of the human experience, and the incredible healing power of creativity. This is a story about prioritizing beauty, finding your voice, planting roots where you feel the most alive, and cultivating community through creative expression. So I am very excited to have on the podcast my very dear friend and photographer and, you know, in some ways I would say that you have been a mentor to me, the incredible Sig Harvey. Sig Harvey is a fine artist and photographer living in the same community that I do in Midcoast, Maine. And you were one of the first people that I photographed for this project. I'd love if you would just share a little bit of your personal backstory and how you ended up here. So a little bit about my background. So I knew at a really young age, like, I don't know, maybe 13 or 14, that I wanted to be a photographer. I fell in love with the media more for its storytelling, sort of news, exposure um, of things that need to be changed. That was sort of my passion in my teens. In my 20s, I realized that there was sort of a, perhaps my storytelling had more power when I sort of made it more personal and the work 
shifted when I moved to Maine. I was 26 and I started studying for my MFA. And that was really, I think it would have happened, shifted that way anyway, but it was moving to Maine gave me this very sort of concentrated time and space. And I think for artists to find their voice, that's what you need, time and space, right? It's the ingredients. Absolutely. And sometimes that can be, I mean, living in a rural area, oftentimes lower cost of living. And so it allows you that time and space as an artist, something that, you know, I never really occurred to me until now. But living in the city and trying to make that life work, you oftentimes have to work for others, work through academia, and you never get that space away. So Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was a full-time assistant professor at, at a university in Boston for 10 years, and that was in my late 20s to sort of late 30s. Yeah, oftentimes, and I loved my job. I absolutely loved it. I taught photography and bookbinding. It was an extraordinary way to live, but there was so little time for my own work, you know, and my rent was a fortune. So I think that time and space thing and just being in the country... You know, our rents are, or our mortgages are so much lower, and it just gives you a moment to sort of take a breath, really. And I often think that art comes out of not being bored by the opposite, but having this moment where you just sort of can sit there with your books or with your ideas and ferment and think and, you know, where it's you're not always on this incredible schedule. Um, I remember thinking about, you know, when I was, when, when I had Scout, when I was 37, I realized, you know, to stay in the city, I would, my entire wages would be going on daycare, you know, and I could sit, I could sit on my butt in Maine and eat bonbons and be the same, (laughs) (laughs) thinking about art, maybe, you know, I don't know, it's a, it's such a complicated decision to know if it's the right one. I remember when I gave up my job, this job that I loved, I was like, what have I done? You know, but I just trusted the process that this was the life I wanted to live in the country so I had to take that leap of faith, but I definitely had moments of, of just that sort of white fear, right? Of just panic. Oh no, you know, it's difficult. Yeah. And I mean, I would love for you to kind of talk about the steps that you took because you didn't really have any other options here. You could have started to teach here in the schools, which I know that you do, and I'll let you talk a little bit about that work as well. But you really had to build a career as a fine artist from a rural area. And I wondered what that experience was like for you. And, you know, comparing it to other people that you know that work in the arts, how it differs from their paths. You know, I did my MFA up here and I sort of set up towards the end of that some of my even current galleries. When I fully moved back to Maine, so I came to Maine, uh, just a bit of backstory, I came to Maine in 1999 from running a studio, a photographic studio in Boston, and also waitressed and bartended. So I came here in 99, and then in 2003, that's when I moved to Boston. And I would race up here every weekend, because for me, my, my artwork has to be made in the country. Like, I love being in the city. I'm so inspired to be in the city, to go to museums and go get my nails done and all that good stuff, right? But actually, my work, my, you know, my artwork, it needs to... I need to be in the country. I need that space. I'm inspired by nature and the way the light moves across the land and, and, and space and old woods and just the landscape here. When I moved back here full time, 
I did have things already in place, if I'm honest. You know, I had a gallery in New York at that point, different gallery to who I'm with now with Robert Mann, but a gallery in New York, and I had my, my gallery in Boston. So I did have this structure already set up, but it still felt like, you know, a big risk to, you know, to not be W2'd and to, to, to go and live as a completely freelance. I had always, you know, taught workshops in addition to teaching full-time and also done some commercial work. The commercial work is probably what shifted the most, to be honest, that I stopped doing that just because... It was too much travel to work on spec for editorials, which doesn't, you know, and I had a child, small child and, you know, it just didn't, that's actually, I didn't realize it would work out like that, but that, that's a sort of has been a, a shift. I've done much less commercial work. I've gotten my fix from teaching through workshops still, and I still do, although I teach much less now. It's just a time, time thing. And also obviously COVID the last few years. So I think having those structures in place definitely helped, but I 100% nurtured and built those relationships more when I moved back here full time. What advice would you give to young creatives? And I mean, that applies really to so many different mediums. But what advice would you give to young creatives who kind of maybe have in their mind that in order to be successful, they have to live in a city? What would you say to them or give them advice on how to set yourself up to a certain degree before you leave? Or how could they build that from their rural hometowns that they're already in right now? I think the most important thing for any for any artist, it doesn't matter if you're new or old, right? You know, I think it's this idea of just finding your voice. And you do that through making work. It's almost that 10,000 hours thing. Yeah. You need to make the work. And I tell my students this, and I think it's, 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 it's the most comforting thing, but also the most terrifying thing, that the work is already inside of you. You just have to work hard enough to let it out. So it's there. So, you know, occasionally with some of my students, I remember I would like, the workshop students, I would like lock them in their cars <laughs> or lock them in my car. They couldn't get out until they'd done the written assignments and gotten, you know, I think there's something about being forced to look at the interior, you know, in, and, and making making work about the things you're concerned about. And that doesn't necessarily mean concerned boo-hoo, but concerned within the world. What do you care about? Because then once you find what is unique to you and what is inside you, I promise you, is unique to you, and then you make work that's concerned with that, then only you can do that. And then it's a matter of, okay, well, who needs that? So then which gallery needs that or which product needs that? Or, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's fine art, which is only in the business of pleasing itself or commercial, which is typically trying to sell something, you know, which both can be beautiful. Um, art is always beautiful, obviously, but so can some commercial jobs for sure. You know, so I think that it's a matter of figuring out who you are and you can do that in a city if you aren't distracted, you can do that. If you can give you, and you can, you know, have that time and space where you're not working constantly to make rent. If you can give yourself that time and space to make work, and then it's figuring out, well, what's the right channel for this? So I think, you know, I see sometimes people trying to get their work out there before they've really owned it or before it's really become their own. And that can be tricky because people can smell that a mile away, you know? Or equally, it's the complicated part of, not realizing that there is a market for your work. You may be putting it in the wrong place. I think that that's totally right. Just the idea of, you said it a couple of times, time and space. 
And, you know, time and space can feel like such a privilege too, right? And I wondered if you wanted to speak on the privileges that you've had in your life and how that has kind of helped you along the way in your career, because I just think that it's nice to know where the starting line is for people. Yeah, I think that I mean, without a doubt, I've had privileges and, you know, acknowledge them. You know, I have a very supportive family, but, but, you know, my family weren't artists and uh, was sort of perplexed and puzzled by some of my choices. But I was lucky that they trusted me and believed me. And I I remember, you know, it's interesting. I remember my dad, I did a big commercial job in 2007 for Kate Spade and it helped me pay for the down payment of the house. And I remember my dad's slow tear. He was like, oh my God, you can make money through pictures. That's for him was the, the sign that, you know, I guess there was some sign of success or whatever yeah. it is. Whereas for, for me, it had ha- happened much earlier when I completed a portfolio that really felt true and authentic to me. So that was my sort of marker of success. Yeah. So I think that, you know, I definitely have had the the support and, and the, I guess the trust, you know, even though I think I might have been bewildering to my parents sometimes, I think I had the sort of trust that, the, that I was forging a path. And I have to remember to do that with Scout, you know, my daughter, this idea of just like getting out of the way of her, yeah. that, you know, kids will tell us what they want to do and, you know, maybe not to line up a thousand things every night after school for her that she will lead the way, you know, I mean. I don't remember my parents ever taking me to anything after school, and but I was fiercely passionate about photography, you know? Artists are mirrors, I think. Yeah. And sometimes they're holding mirrors up to themselves. Sometimes they're holding mirrors up to the world. I've seen your work change through these different times in your life. Yeah. To me, it's very interesting because I can connect to those images of like what those feelings are, you know, that feeling of like free and everything's a possibility and so much color to, you know, starting out in the black and whites of like your kind of more teen angsty years. (laughs) But responding to this world that we find ourselves in now, how are you seeing your work change? How are you responding? When COVID hit, I think like so many, many of us, that first month, oh my God, it was like the pit of despair, wasn't it? I mean, it was for, for me Especially anyway. Especially in Maine too, because it's just the hardest month too, oh, is March. I mean, it, March, <laughs> we're just about to go into my, March on Tuesday we already. Oh. Um, so, you know, it was such a difficult month because in the rest of, uh, you know, not the rest of the world, but the rest of of a lot of America, you know, spring comes in March. And in Maine, it doesn't come really until it's definitely May. It's not even April, is it? You know, occasionally some years it will be April, but March is really deep winter still. You know, and when that first, when COVID hit, remember when we were like wiping down our grocery? Actually, I never did that. That was so bad. (laughs) You did. did. (laughs) You know, but it was that we just didn't know. And I was for sure that no one was ever buying any pictures again why would they what was the point of a you know nobody needs artwork and you know or that's questionable but we actually do as as humans need to surround ourselves with things that bring us beauty but it it is and joy but it felt like nobody would ever buy anything again you know any artwork and it it was 
off the list. So it was sort of this terrifying time. And then I don't know how it was in your house, but in my house, which is a sort of progressive house, suddenly I felt like I was a 1950s housewife. Yeah. You know, the childcare scout obviously was out of school. The, my husband worked, Doug, who I adore, he works for a, a tech company. So his world got even busier, right? Because everyone needed everything online and he worked with, you know, cloud-based storage and things. So he was working from like seven till seven. And, you know, I was, you know, doing all the schooling and uh, the housework and, you know, it just, I felt my, some of my, not identity, but, you know, my, where there was no time for me to be creative. And so it was a complicated time that first month. And then I got the call from the uh, New York Times and I had that assignment called Still Life. And that sort of jolted me, like, woke me up. Like, what am I doing? You know, because they asked me to um, photograph what was happening in my life right now. It's called Still Life. So they asked 12 photographers around America to document their time. And I, and I went, you know, and I started thinking, well, what am I doing right now? And I was making masks. I was cleaning the house I mean all the things that were just so not me like I've, I still had that first mask and it was a disaster and I was like what am I I'm not going to photograph that there's no way so like so many times in my life photography has saved me I decided I was going to bring spring into the house and I was going to document that with my camera and it it was a complete 180 in my whole attitude and I went at it and I spent I think I've spent the last two years still going at it with like trying to bring joy trying to bring beauty trying to bring color because I do believe that through art through experiences of beauty that we will feel more and we will be better and more compassionate neighbors and I you know and then I started projecting doing the nightly projections in downtown Rockport and that was a you know that was an emotional highlight of my career without a doubt I actually was just about to ask you about that. I mean, was it for a whole year? It's supposed to be four days, and it lasted three months. So every day at sunset, a ever-changing slideshow of Sig's work, which is just, I mean, I'm going to have some of it in the supporting like blog post for, the, for this episode, but... It was just like explosions of color and feeling and all of Maine was shades of gray and white at that point and everybody was feeling isolated and terrified and you would just see all these cars drive up at sunset and watch this slideshow and it really was like a way of having community during a very isolating time and you just like went right on it and... I don't know, it was just it was perfect for who you are and for the type of work that you do. It's always really frustrated me, quite honestly, the criticism often of our critics of work that's too beautiful. And I think that there are places for both. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit on that. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I have thought long and hard, many hours about beauty and photography. And in, in when I was doing my MFA, it was like, don't mention beauty, don't mention, like, back away, back away, you know. <laughs> and, you know, I question it, uh, you know, just as we spoke about a minute ago, this idea of we're looking at these systemic beliefs, like, well, who said it was too beautiful? And 
you know, I think that is some criticism that's leveled more at women rather than men's work. I mean, I, you know, look at Alex Katz's work. It's gorgeous. Wyeth's gorgeous. You know, I mean, there's plenty of, you know, extraordinary artists that are making beautiful work and perhaps it's not leveled in the same way at women as it is at men. And, and you know, but I, for me, I truly believe that we, we need more beauty in the world rather than less. And who is, you know, I think we have to look at who is sort of who is saying that and where does that systemic belief come from? You know, I think that, you know, for many, many years, it's a particular branch of society who's defining what is or what isn't art. And I think that's another, you know, beautiful part of these last few years where we're questioning, well, where does that come from? You know, and do I agree with that? And actually, no, I don't. I mean, I think that, you know, my work is... You know, I do think I engage a beauty as a way to seduce people. But the work that I showed projected, you know, 70 foot by 30 in Rockport was it was about living and dying. You know, there's, I mean, that is as, as in many ways, it's as, as intense a subject matter as you can get. I mean, I'm not just trying to sort of make a postcard. I'm trying to engage. I'm using beauty as a tool to talk about, you know, what it is to, to die and to be alive and, and to have senses and to be lucky enough to have sensory experiences. So, you know, I'm definitely not promoting making postcards and just, you know, cuteness, but beauty as a tool to make people like pay attention. Yes. That's exactly it. It's delivering really harsh truths or messages, Mm -hmm. imparting messages in that work. And I feel like your work has so many metaphors in it. And I wondered what your process was, how much of your work is found versus created. And kind of how you, I mean, I know what it's called because I have like studied with you and know your work, but mind mapping, talk yeah. a little bit about that. A lot of my early work in my, in my early 20s was constructed because I was making work about the past and I didn't know how to do that in the present. So I would mind map, brainstorm, think about metaphors, symbols, you know, if, if, you know, what type of light I should tell this story in, should it be black and white, color, saturated, desaturated, you know, the formal concerns of photography. So, you know, light, frame, color, black and white, the formal concerns, all of that stuff, what camera to use, and then the content, which is, you know, metaphor and symbolism. So I would definitely sort of think about, okay, well, how can I tell this story through metaphor, a story of betrayal, for example, through metaphor. But then slowly a shift happened when I started making work about the present where I didn't need to construct. So now, you know, cut to, you know, 25 years later, it's really a hybrid of the two. Like I always have a camera on me and, you know, because if I see something incredible, like on the way over here, the snow, we had a foot of snow yesterday and it's a brilliantly blinding day, isn't it, out there? I got yeah. When I went, took my dog for a walk this morning, I couldn't see a single thing. It burned my eyes burned when my I came eyes. inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so sunny. But the wind was blowing the snow off the trees, and it was so beautiful. And imagine if I didn't have a camera with me. You know, I would really be a, you know, suck, sucky photographer if I didn't have a camera. So it's using that, you know. But if I didn't get it, I will dwell on that picture and I'll wait for it to snow again and be windy and I'll be ready. And maybe I'll be ready with, you know, with someone who I want to photograph in that scene or I'll be ready. So it's sort of this mix. I use the camera as as a sketch, the one that's always in my bag, but sometimes I don't get it and I'll re 
you know, re-go at it with a more constructed idea around it. Interesting. So you've used the camera sometimes as a sketch. That makes a lot of sense. I also wondered, you know, you incorporate narrative with your work. How do you write that narrative? Are you constructing the narrative ahead of time with the images pulling you through? Or do you weave all the images together at the end and then create the narrative? You know, no, with the, with the text. So I've written for years as a way to access more pictures, right? It's the same, I do yoga, but you know, no interest in teaching yoga. I just use it as a way to clear out more space so more there's more room to think about pictures, yeah. you know? And so the, I've always written, but it was... When I published my first book in 2010, You Look at Me Like an Emergency, that was when I pulled together the text because I realized that the pictures were doing one thing and that the text was in a way more honest, more direct, more contemporary. So bringing them together sort of held up each other in a way that added came to more than the sum of the parts, I would hope. But in terms of putting them together, I really, I gather. So right now I'm two, three years into a new project that no one's really seen and I'm just making every week I I make stuff and I sort of put it into the yes and the no pile and the maybe and then I'm writing and I'm writing and I'm not thinking about the two together at all they're in different different days different boxes and then I'll start bringing them together or hopefully they'll go together hopefully that I but I trust that coming back to that time and space thing earlier I trust that because I made them they will go together You're absolutely right. There's the narrative of your photos, and then there are the words that are paired with them. But they feel so intertwined throughout, and and so it's interesting to hear that process. That it's separate Mm -hmm. and then brought together. And so the sequencing of the books is, like, it's brutal at the end because the jigsaw puzzle, and I'm terrible at jigsaw puzzles, you know. (laughs) It's like I didn't realize you're supposed to do the outside bit first. I just, like, go for the colors I'm most interested in. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And there's like these color shifts through the book. And there's so many like little breadcrumbs that you leave along in all of your final pieces like that. And the book really is the culmination of everything, you know, because even your shows are very immersive. And I know that you've kind of taken that on over time. And I wondered if you could give any advice to young artists, particularly women, on ways to get their work seen and ways to take up space in a still male-dominated industry? Yeah, I mean, I think there has to be some tenacity. There has to be, I think, you know, first and foremost, make sure the work's ready. Mm -hmm. You know, don't try and sort of shop it too soon. It needs to be ready. You need to feel confident. And that someone, you know, not everyone is going to like your work. And and so knowing that if someone doesn't like it, that it's not going to destroy you and send you sort of whimpering down the, you know, down the passageway. So that, I think the work being ready first and foremost, and you believing in the work, you know, it sounds obvious, but it's a really, I think it's so important that you feel steady in it. And then it's sort of, yeah, it's being tenacious. It's like figuring out how to get it in front of people, always being nice so simple so simple but you know it's a really big thing it goes a long way and professional professional, uh, being on time I'm always early you know just sort of these these simple things but just sort of laying out a plan and I'm realizing you know it's a small world people will help you if you ask them for help and if you are kind and nice and all those good things you know so I think and always say you know I said yes to everything probably too much at the beginning because I felt like I could never there's probably 
I could never say no to anything. You're probably yeah, the same. I'm You're the exact. I'm, I'm still in it. I'm still saying yes. I got. I gotta. I gotta start. Yeah, exactly. I gotta start with the boundaries. Yeah. So you know, and just realizing, and this is another thing. I think celebrating every step of the way, even if it's like a small victory. You know, the small victories. I think are. They're as important as the big ones, you know, because that is the life then being lived as an artist. Because, you know, it's, you're not searching for this one thing to happen. It's bits along the way. I wondered if you, you know, had any advice. I feel like more and more people are finding talent outside of the usual channels. You know, the channels that we usually would have to kind of go into. And I wondered if you had any advice for people that, you know, maybe are self-taught and they really want to make photography their career. They're freaking passionate about it and they would do anything to make that their full-time thing. What advice would you give them? To keep going. Like there's no, I mean, I think that's the beautiful thing about being an artist, that there's not one road, is there? I mean, it's not like being a doctor where you would hope your doctor had been to college. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you would hope. Please. Where's the um, spleen? <laughs> <laughs> Over there somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, there there isn't one, one road. And, you know, you can get beautiful education through being self-taught or beautiful education through mentoring or, you know, there are other ways. It's not so prescriptive. And I think that's another thing that, the, another thing that will come out of COVID is that there's not just one way to do things and getting, you know, going, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and coming out an artist. I mean, it's kind of soul crushing, you know, so that maybe that's not the right way. And, you know, can you find the rigor? I think what school can give you is sort of rigor at looking at yours and others work. And that's a beautiful thing. But I certainly wouldn't say that the only place to get that is it is it a, you know, university or college. You mentioned the like 10,000 hour rule, and I think that that's so true. But I wondered if anybody, you know, listening has pursued art and has put in that 10,000 hours, Mm -hmm. but they're still feeling like, I have no idea what my voice is. How did you find your voice? How did you identify it? What were the steps that you took and the reflections that you had as you grew that got you to that point where you were like, this is who I am, this is what I'm saying, and it's me? Yeah, I think that it is, as artists, we are the last person to often know what our work's about, even though... It's so it. true. It's so depressing. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I'm about to do a mission statement with my friend because I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. What is this? <laughs> it's, it's like, why is that? And it's like, you know, I mean, I teach this stuff, and yet when it comes to my, my own work, you know, I'm like... Is it about that? You know, like it's sort of, and then it like blindsides me, like a crack across the back of the head when you realize what it is about. You're like, oh my God, like I teach this stuff and it's still, I'm the last to know. So I think for some reason for artists, that is, you know, something that is, is quite likely to happen, I would say. And then trust that, you know, once you know that that's quite likely to happen when you're happening, then you've got to take the necessary steps. So I would say the necessary steps are to get that work in front of someone who you trust and not be defensive and listen, you know, listen to that or whether it's a teacher, whether it's in a workshop, whether it's just someone down the road, it's a, you know, I think formalize it a little bit, you know, so it's just, it's not too casual that there's, you've got some skin in the game, you know, but I think as artists, we can also be quite, it's quite natural for us to be quite defensive as well, because we poured our heart and soul into this. And to think that it might be doing something different than what we have decided it should be about is sort of can be 
a real punch to the stomach, I think, you know. And so being able to be teachable, being able to be open and aware is a really wonderful thing. I think it's kind of essential. I think the worst two things for artists is being arrogant and ignorant. It's like a double whammy of like a bad combo, you know. You're absolutely right. And I've taught some of them. <laughs> and it's hard because they want to get better. Oh, but they the want it so but the badly. thing yeah. that is standing in their way of getting better is just like being able to listen and absorb and you can take whatever you want from it. Yeah. You know, it can just be little pieces, yeah. but just listen and be open to it and yeah. receive it. Receive it, yeah. yeah. And sometimes we, you know, given something and it takes us a couple of years to receive it and you know, and, and you have to be at the that right point. But I really think that if someone's been doing it for years and and is still sort of unsure that the you're missing I think there's often you're missing that that bridge, that last step. Yeah. where you're almost like understood. I mean, art becomes, it's such a complicated thing, right? Because it comes from inside of us. It's always worthy, in my opinion. And everyone everyone has a unique voice. But it's as a culture, we're then trying to sort of assign things to it and, and move things really quickly. I don't, it, yeah, I'm, I'm being vague here, but it, it's this idea of letting, realizing the work is its own thing. And that sometimes when we assign words to it, they're not the right words. That just applies to every aspect of life, doesn't it? I mean, if we're going to move forward as a society, there have been so many things that we have done wrong, so many systems that are very, very wrong. If all human beings can just take that moment to receive information that people are trying to tell them instead of deflecting it. Yeah, being defensive or... It wasn't, you know, yeah, exactly. Just receive it. Receive it with, like, probably the love that it was given, yeah. you know, and, and how would that be? And, and it's something that, yeah, in every facet, if you think about relationships, you think about definitely artwork, but I would say so many different industries, right, of how, of jobs. And I think the world would be a lot less full of conflict. The life of a working artist can manifest in so many different ways. And I wondered what your work life looks like from a day-to-day -day perspective and how you balance living life and pursuing your career and this passion of yours. You know, that's one thing I just love about my job and my life is that it's always different. Yeah. You know, and I, I mean, that's not for everyone, but it is for me. It is, I like that, you know. I remember I had a sort of salaried job, I mean, aside from like waitressing and bartending, which I did all through college to pay my way, you know. But uh, I had a salaried job once and I was just like, oh, depressed. You know, it just, I, it, it, I was going to earn the same whether I worked, you know. 80 hours that week or 40, I mean, sort of, you know, um, it has its own reward in other ways. It's not always about money, is it? But it didn't fire me up. So for me, that this sort of living a life that feels varied is a really important aspect, I think, to, to my happiness. Yeah. Um, so yesterday, for example, I was out shooting in the snow for hours and I'm working on a documentary about Blue Violet, my latest book with River Finlay, which has been a really wonderful experience working with her. So we were out shooting and then I had a, a two-hour writing class. Every day is a little bit different, a little bit of teaching, a little bit of mentoring, you know, less shooting than I would hope for, to be honest, you know, but lots of the business side of things, you know, like 
getting things framed now that COVID is on the slowdown, you know, back to travel again, booking flights, lots of very unglamorous things like trying to find the right box for FedEx and things like that. But it's very diverse. I do... I do sort of struggle and everyone does this idea of, you know, finding the balance between making art and the business side. It's not always in balance. I wish it was, but it's just, you know, we're all a work in progress, right? Yeah. And the business side of art is so crucial once you reach a certain level of your career. And I wondered, have you always done that side yourself? And if not, like, when did you feel comfortable? When did you feel ready to bring on help in those areas where you were lacking? You know, I uh, have done different things through over the years. I think the business side of things is important no matter when, where you are as an artist. Whether you're starting off brand new, you need to have it. If, or if you, even if you have no interest in making money, but you do want to get your work out there, yeah. you have to you, the business side of art. You know, you have to get the work out there. There's a process to that. So. You know, I think in over the years, it's been different. Sometimes I've had assistants come to my home and the studio and, and work with me. Other times it's just me. During COVID, it was obviously just me. And so I, I started outsourcing more things. Like my printer lives in North Carolina and he is wonderful. And, you know, I don't print any of my own stuff anymore. And he's been printing my work for about 10 years. So we're really in sync and we just communicate daily. So... That for me was so worth it. Rather than having an assistant come to my home and work on the files to then yeah. send to him, he just does the whole thing now. And while he's like quite expensive by the hour, yeah. you know, it's it's worth it because I'm not redoing anything. It's I'm not, nice. you know, it's so I've learned to get, I think of it as like being sort of smarter with that kind of thing rather than redoing or do, doing a like shoddy job, things that I'm not good at mm-hmm. that you know, perhaps I can outsource and get someone else to do that. So it's not necessarily being employed, but more contract labor, you know, so that everyone's doing what they're best at. I just wanted to give an enormous thank you to all of the listeners who have made contributions towards the production of this podcast. Every season, I spend about 100 hours preparing, writing, editing, interviewing, sketching, distributing, and I have hard costs for my editor and hosting fees. It means so much to me that you find enough value and meaning in this work to pledge your support to keep it going. If you haven't had a chance to contribute, we've made it really easy. Just click the support button on the top of urbanexodus.com and pledge any amount that you like. Or join the Urban Exodus Patreon community. Thank you again. I feel so lucky to be a part of the amazing global community that this project has manifested. Teaching has just been such an amazing and transformative experience in my life. And I wondered if you could talk about what teaching means to you and what teaching has done to your work as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful exchange. I think teaching, I love to learn and I love to be taught and I also love to teach. It's a real passion of mine. And I think it's, you know, I feel so privileged that I was lucky enough to have some great teachers who taught me that photography can be this lifelong passion that, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to be so bold, but I'm saying, you know, save my life time and time again, you know, and, and been this mirror, been this, uh, this constant steady source of bringing good into my life. So, 
you know, I had teachers that opened the door and said photography could be this for you. And to then be able to return that gift and pass that on and to show that even if you don't want to be an artist or you don't want to call yourself that or earn money from, from making pictures or whatever it is, but just to have it as a place to sort of, as a, these are the marks that I'm leaving behind. These are the photographs. I think that's an extraordinary way to live. I mean, you know, being the best amateur is is better than being a professional in many ways because it's just purely love. And it's like, it's this beautiful, like visual legacy that you pass yeah. down. You know, when you said that, I kind of got goosebumps because I remember finding my grandfather's images, all of his old black and white photos up in a closet that we had from England right after World War II. Yeah. And they were beautiful. And, you know, you could tell that he practiced at it and that he got better over time. And it was such a time capsule of a life that I would have had no glimpse into any other way. And it also, it shows you, like, I, I believe if I send 10 people out right now with cameras, they will come back and say, come back in four hours what they come back with will be so reflective of what's inside of them. And then it comes back to the time and space thing again, right? Yeah. Of like, everyone's unique because their experiences. Photography is the only, sub, the only art form, I believe, that's so tied to subject matter because you have to take pictures of things for them to be about things, right? Yeah. So, and what we choose to put in front of the lens is so telling. I mean, I think of it as a Ouija board. It's like, <laughs> it's so, it's the fortune, it's the tarot right there. You know, it comes back and it reveals things about us. So, you know, that showing people the tools and like the mind mapping that I do so that you can have a bridge from gut, it, what's inside you, to then this piece of paper that you can hang on the wall in the form of a photograph mm -hmm. that is somehow a reflection of what you feel inside or what you believe in in the world or what needs to be changed, that that can happen. And you can show people how to cook that, how to make that. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing. And so it's a real privilege to be a teacher. And also it's, you know, most of most of my days are spent kind of, you know, alone or in this sort of internal world. And I love to laugh. And so it's great to, you know, to have that connection with people who want to make images and get out there and teach them and, and, and have some laughs and, you know, and learn about their stories and, you know, and just how people you know, you never know what's going on in people's worlds, you know, and that's really, you know, that sort of human nature part is really fascinating to me too. You said a couple of times in this interview that, you know, art has saved your life at various points mm -hmm. in your life. And I'd love for you to talk, because I know that a lot of the workshops that you teach are based on personal story. Yeah. And I think that's a really great place for people to start in their creative journey because it really is tapping into whatever it is that you're trying to say inside your body. But we're all coming to the table with very different life experiences. And I see you almost as an art therapist as well in your teaching. And I wondered like your thoughts on art as therapy and art as a way to heal ourselves from trauma because we're living in this time of like, a collective mental health crisis. Yeah. So how can people use creativity to heal? I mean, this, we could talk about this for an hour in itself. Right? <laughs> I mean, really, it's really interesting. And, you know, I'm not a trained therapist. And sometimes, you know, it's interesting. So when I first started teaching, so, you know, I was in my late 20s and I was teaching like photo two or dark room or something like that. And then 
I just couldn't help myself. I'm like, but what does it mean? You know, I would like really, I would make, I would, I, you know, I think it's my talent to just get in there. What's, what's going on with this, this work? And why are you making pictures of this? And, and I was really studying what people, like that idea of sending 10 people out and then having them explain to what they're going through. Like I, I saw it in the work, you know? And um, so I totally, and so while I'm not a therapist and many people would say like, I'm not trained in that, you know, and back away. I actually truly believe in the process of art, that the process is the therapist. It's not me. I'm just the guide, right? And so I don't know if it necessarily, I don't, to heal or we carry this stuff around in us anyway. So at least acknowledging it and making something beautiful from it, as in the piece of art, processing. I think that's got to help. So rather than it being, I mean, it doesn't have to be something traumatic. It could be something beautiful, right? But it has to be felt. So it's not to say that art, the ingredients of art always has to be something sad. But I think the impulse when we've been broken up with is to, we're more likely to pen a poem when we've been broken up with than when we are, when we're like, you know, just had the best day of our lives. We're not ready to necessarily write a poem about it but I think the impulse human nature is when it's things we don't understand and we they're upsetting that we then sort of turn to art or literature as a way to understand further and I do think it can do that but I don't think it has to always be be sad I mean I think the work about falling in love or having a child or you know the uh, beautiful intense relationships I mean I think that can be an extraordinary ingredient but I definitely feel that making work about whatever your is going on inside of you is a way of living a more open life absolutely it doesn't have to be a camera it can be a video camera it can be a paintbrush it can be arranging rocks it can be yeah it could be yoga so I was at a yoga teacher training last week and I'm doing it not to teach but to learn more right and um, it's a yin yoga and we were talking about yin yoga and trauma and you know someone was saying oh I would you know stay away from you know I'm I'm not a therapist stay away from that and I would say but what you're doing is you know with yin you're basically it's not about the muscles you're not using the muscles at all it's about the fascia right and when you have trauma physical or emotional it gets stuck and so you get these like spider web bird's nest bits in your body where like trauma is stuck and what that yin yoga does is stretches it and starts moving it and releasing things and that's the same thing as making art I think is that we're we're the things that are perhaps inside us that we don't quite fully understand or that feel a little stuck it's if you can start moving things I think it's got to help you know I think that there is an innateness to your art like you have to do it you're tapping in but certainly you have faced the inevitable like brick wall and I wondered because that is so difficult to overcome and a lot of times when people hit you know one of the probably 15 brick walls (laughs) in their journey they'll give up and what advice would you give them to just power through or how have you powered through well, so the writing really helps. Writing, for me, even if you never share it with anyone, it's not meant to be read in public or, or, or in a book or published. So that has always helped unstick me. And, and so when, when I'm not feeling very photographically inspired, like 
March in Maine, you know, <laughs> then I tend to write more, you know, and, and, and I can write about, I don't need subject matter can be in my head, right, in March. Or the act of writing, you can do that. Whereas photography, again, it's so slippery, it's tied to things, right? We take pictures of things. I do that. I also, you know, things like yoga, walking my dog, moving forward, all of that stuff seems to really help unleash, you know, getting stuck, I think. I also will do something like, and I've always done this, is I I get a lot of, I find it deeply relaxing to go thrifting. I know you feel the same way. I love that. Yes. And it is, I mean, it seems terribly capitalistic, it's about stuff, but it's, it's not. It makes me feel like when I get stuck, sometimes I go thrifting, which is so weird. And it somehow releases it. Like I just feel, I can feel my shoulders come down and I just, in my own little world, and I rarely go looking for a particular thing because then you never can find it, right? I'll wait for something to speak to me, a color or a thing. And and then, you know, and it can't be too much. I have to be able, because it can't be an expensive thing. Like I think, you know, it, it has to be something that then I can, either bury or sink or blow up or crack or do something with because then it's transporting. You don't want to just take a picture of the thing, right? So it has to be this, I don't feel too precious about it, but that can, it can be a really fun way to release being sort of creatively blocked, I think. Interesting. So yeah, you you basically have like a a token that you are now pulling up and you're like, what is it? What's the story? Tell me your metaphor. Right, and I have to make a picture within 24 hours. Otherwise, I'm not allowed to buy it. So oh, then I'd like, so basically it's like a, it's like a kid, right? It's yeah. the kid in me. The artist in me is not so different than a four-year-old, right? If you, if you want it, you got to work for it. <laughs> oh, Sig, so, you know, you were one of the first people that I met when I moved here, and also you were one of the first people I photographed for Urban Exodus. Like, going into your house is like walking into your mind, and I <laughs> and I have never felt that way really about other people. You know, sometimes it's rare that I would walk into someone's home and be like, this is like walking into your mind. But it is. And I think it's because you're very visual and you like to live in your mind in a lot of ways. All of these little pieces, these little tokens from stories, I know that I saw a lot of them in your house. Yeah. What do you do with all of them when you're done taking the picture? Will someday there be this beautiful, like, retrospective of work and there'll be all of these objects? I think so. I think so. I mean, I have, I have kept them all. So I have a, a prop closet that's actually where a lot of the clothes from the shoots are. And, you know, objects, they, they live on. I can't get rid of them because they've given me something, right? You know, and so I do think I would love to do that. I, I wonder if it would be interesting to have a show with all the, or whether that would. I think if they were all like a sculpture together or if they were all (laughs) like combined, so it was like another layer because that's the other thing that you've started to do with your work is add these layers. Mm. And so you're adding embroidery and you're adding neon signs and you're adding all of these different layers and environmental elements of lighting and wall color. And I wondered about, you know, those additions. You're absolutely right. I mean, I didn't think of it so so directly, but you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, it's much more now. I'm I'm 
I'm not really interested in having a show with just pictures on the wall, and I haven't for a couple of years. It was the Agunquit show that sort of was the pivot for me where I wanted people to have more of their senses, just in, just the eye, more than just immersive. the eyes, immersive. Yeah. So, you know, my last few shows, you've had to brush past flowering mint to get into the room or and the wall colour and then, you know, vintage roses in urns or neon signs, which I've been working in neon for about 10 years now, but that was definitely trying to find a way to sort of shake people by the shoulders to say look look at this you know so I think having the objects themselves yeah there's a way to do it I don't quite know what it is but I've kept them all just in case this year what I want to do I actually tried it last year but it was a it was a hashtag fail I I planted I bought um I decided I want the outside of the house to be more reflective too because the inside is one thing it, it yes it's all of that oh my gosh I'm so excited it's floor, for this. It's floor to ceiling so inside the house it's like floor, floor to ceiling salon style artwork hung and color and you know every all the colors what's your favorite color all of them but the outside has always seemed you know like a little like I don't know, boring. So anyway, last year I bought like 100 flowering, is it mandevilles? Is that how you call them with a the red, big red flower? Is that mandevilio or something? Mm-hmm. Anyway, but I bought by mistake the non-climbing kind, but I had this vision that they would just climb and the house would be covered with like 10,000 red flowers. Wouldn't that be amazing? Okay. So I'm doing it this year. So then it becomes like, it's taking it a step further where the garden is art and, you know. I love a, I believe it's called a potager garden. It's a British, I believe, garden. That sounds French. How do you say it? How do you spell it? P-O-T-A-G-E-R. Yeah, I bet that's French. Then I definitely said it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Potager. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, it's like ornamental plantings of food. So it's like edible landscapes that are so beautiful and that is my dream to like be able I know to be able to have the time to do these like elaborate art food gardens that just seems it's so practical but also so beautiful and (laughs) I love this for you Alyssa (laughs) (laughs) but I'm really excited about your beautiful your covered house yeah like of I flowers want, I don't want to have to eat it like it's gonna it, it's just purely visual it only has to serve my eyes but I'm gonna do it this year and I'm really excited I read recently is it well, a few years ago now but Robert Owen's seeing it's got he's got this incredible book called seeing is not knowing the name of the thing you're looking at or something like that but where it's all about perception and just in the body and he designed the gardens at the Getty just to really like soccer punch like leaving the intellect behind and just getting straight to a sensory experience which is which is something I'm really interested in like we don't pay enough we don't give enough credit to the body as being a memory you know instead of the brain yeah absolutely well it's all five senses then right right? you know and that is what immersion is and we are living so much in the digital space which like that really does cut off a lot of those like immersive senses that we used to have to warn us if things were okay or to tell us, you know, like like all of these different sensory elements that are tied to our intuition. Yeah, and will we lose them? Will will evolution, will we not need them? You know, will it be that our bodies will evolve to, to not need them? I mean, I feel so bad. One of the main reasons, I mean, obviously it's many, but one of the main reasons I didn't want to get COVID and so far I've been lucky enough to not have it was losing my sense of smell and taste. Like, no, thank you. That sounds terrible. Yeah. 
Oh. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such a high levels linked to depression um, in terms of if you don't have a sense of smell. Sense of smell and being in, not ha- in lack of uh, sense of smell, huge correlation to depression. And, it, and you don't realize what, you know, these, these sensory experiences are bringing to just a greater well-being every day, you know? I think when you say sense of smell, it like transports me to your photographs, but it also transports me to like that glorious you know, third week of May in Maine Mm. when all the lilacs come out. And it's like, it feels like the first time you have smelled anything so lovely all year. Mm -hmm. Nothing smells in a freezer, does it? Yeah, nothing smells in a freezer. And then like, you know, when it starts to thaw, it doesn't really, doesn't smell bad, smells great. But there's nothing like, like a warm lilac blooming. Yeah, before that, it's like the earth thawing. It does. It has got a bit of a funky smell to it, I think, you know. Yeah. But the lilacs, oh, my goodness. Like, you know, we're all dogs hanging out the window panting, aren't we, with it, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, that really ties into being able to tie into your five senses, to tie into your intuition. Mm-hmm. So much easier outside of a city because the city you know, you aren't tied into the seasons in a lot of ways. And light is very different. Like it's, you have blocks, you have artificial light, and we're able to live so much closer to nature in a rural area. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? Connected to, you know, the elements, you know, connected to light. Absolutely. I mean, I don't really know anyone here in Maine who has curtains. Do you have curtains? We have them, but we they're never closed. Okay, so you yeah. don't have them, right? <laughs> they're decorative <laughs> curtains. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, like I, you know, I I pretty much go to bed with the, I mean, not that early, but it's pretty early, like 8.30, yeah. um, you oh, know, yeah. and then wake up at 6 or earlier, you know, when it starts to get light, you know, April, May, I'm, I'm up at five easily and I sort of love that yeah the rhythms circadian rhythms but I think you're right living in the city you're you're more removed from that aren't you perhaps that's why I don't like living in the city anymore do you feel that most people who who come on the show that are searching for that is that a common theme of just light of being more immersed in light I think not just immersed in light but reconnected with nature because I lived in Seattle. It had a ton of parks, and you could feel to a certain degree, and that's why I could tolerate living there. You could feel to a certain degree that you could get lost in the woods and like yeah. maybe not see someone for a short period of time before walking by another hiker. But you can get lost in the woods here for like for hours and not yeah. see another person and only hear birds and be quiet with your thoughts and a lot of people are searching for that because all of this, you know, I don't know, narrative of you go to the city to make your life and then you can do what you want. You know, you got to make it in the city or at least a lot of careers tell you that. Yeah, it's just, I'm just not sure it's true anymore. I know. I agree. There are a lot of people also that listen to this podcast that are younger and I wondered if you had any words to say to them on, you know, maybe they love where they live, but they're worried that they won't be able to make it outside of their area and they don't have the connections? I mean, it's a 
it is a place of privilege to say, to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. That I think if you can find, if you know where you love to live for your for your artwork or whatever that is for you, whether that means music, whether that means dance, yeah. if you know where you feel you're most alive there, you've got to find a way to live there. You know, and and I I feel you know if there's a way you can do it, and maybe it's going to take years to get yeah. there, and that's okay. Like because the years are going to go by anyway. You're still going to be that age, but you're working you're towards there, a dream. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that. You know, it used to be definitely in the world of photo that you had to live in New York. I, I really think it, it was that way. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think if you live in rural Maine, like we do, or mid-coast Maine, it's less rural, but, you know, you have to be prepared to travel and more, which is, you know, and I it's kind of rough landing at midnight and driving four hours home from Boston. Yeah. There are downsides, like with every job, there's downsides, right? Not all jobs are amazing and easy or beautiful all the time. Yeah. But so there are certain things, you know, if you choose to live in a more rural area, you're going to have to travel more. You know, that's sort of part of it. But I don't think, especially with COVID in the world, you know, that is the beautiful side of these screens and Zoom that we that we can. I mean, teaching photography on Zoom is actually, I don't know how you feel, but I love it. I think it's really even more efficient. It's more efficient. And I actually love both. And the reason that I love both is it's two different experiences. When you teach in person and you're all going to the same location yeah. and everybody's taking pictures at that location, I think that informs even more so like what you were saying, the eye and yeah. what people are drawn to. But if people are all shooting in different locations, although the variety and like the eye and the style is still there, they have differing environments to choose what they're taking yeah. pictures of. But, but also the, just the format of looking at pictures on a screen, it's fine. It's, yeah. it's actually like it's maybe in a way it's more, it's more efficient than waiting for people to come in and you know, load it all loaded up. up. Oh, <laughs> yeah, or even put prints on the wall and then you're looking and you've got to respond immediately. I mean, I feel like people, you know, load it up to a, a Dropbox or to whatever and you, I can spend some time before we meet and look through it. And so I think there are some things that, you know, we will take forward. I hope that we will take forward from this time of, you know, strangeness with COVID. But I, I mean, I think across all industries, we're realizing that we don't necessarily need to drive to the office yeah. to, to be most efficient and be at our best at our jobs. And Absolutely. so I, I would encourage people then to say, okay, well then, and why did was it set up that way? Like, where do I love to make work and how can I work towards being there? Even if it's a scary thought. And I mean, being able to teach online, yeah. being able to learn online, yeah. being able to communicate with your friends online, it makes the transition from leaving an environment that maybe you felt comfortable in to maybe a more remote environment or a place that has less opportunities, it makes so much sense because technology is the bridge that still allows you to lead your life in those ways. Do you have any advice? You know, you moved to this area 15 years ago? Well, I came here in 99 uh -huh. and it's 22 now so that's whatever 23 years but then I was in Boston for nine years but we owned a house we, we bought we were renting in Boston but we bought our house here in 2007 so we did a reverse thing we bought a sec uh, you know it seemed like a second home but it yeah. wasn't we knew we were going to end up here so we would race up every weekend so I think of being here you know really 20 years what advice would you give because a lot of people have moved during COVID yeah. and 
it feels like there's a lot of division in our country, more so than I've ever felt in my lifetime. And there is a feeling of fear of outsiders to a certain degree. A lot of rural communities are quite insular. What advice would you give to new arrivals on ways to weave themselves into the fabric of their communities instead of building walls, building bridges? Yeah, I think it's a matter of sort of jumping in, isn't it? You know, I mean, kids have some kids, always great. Yeah, yeah, it <laughs> really true, is. It's true, though. I mean, I think about, you know. They are your, like, ambassadors. <laughs> right, and you just, and you're, you know, you just end up at all types of things, yeah. right? Through, the, you know, your kids, you know, especially, yeah, if you're an artist, I mean, you sort of work at home. My husband, you know, he works, he has a home office. He's always worked from home, but he used to travel more, but obviously that hasn't happened. And so he literally wouldn't see anyone unless, you know, he you know, if he had a home gym or whatever, he would literally would never go out, yeah. you know. So I think it's, you know, we have to find a way to incorporate, you know, getting out into communities and, you know, and, and those of us that are there being welcoming with open arms to new people in the area, remembering what it was like, right? Yeah. So I think I'm pretty good at doing that. But yeah, I think, you know, even if it's not your first nature, you've got to become a bit of a joiner, don't you? Absolutely. Say yes to everything for the yeah. first bit and yeah. never think that you know everything, which you should never feel that <laughs> yeah. way ever in life, yeah. <laughs> but especially apply to that. And don't make judgments about yeah. things that you don't know anything about. I think like that idea of kind of being observant and quiet and, you know, you can still say your opinions on things, yeah. but don't try to be like, I know the way, follow me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that would that would not be good. No, it wouldn't, <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't do well. If you could transport yourself back into the early days of your career, what, if any, advice do you wish you could have told yourself then? I think of myself as like, just a slow and steady snail, you know, like I've just, you know, I, I, I've never, I, I've not someone who makes sort of rash decisions. I decided I was going to be in photography for life and this is, I'm here, you know? And so the idea that anything happened overnight or, you know, it was like, you know, sides chucklingly funny to me. Cause it's just this idea of just, you know, I've always sort of, you know, as always tried to celebrate every step of the way and just make my work and remember that the most important thing is making my work and it doesn't really matter if it doesn't speak to everyone and just being true to myself and so you know it's sort of you know I mean there are things along the way that perhaps jobs I shouldn't take but I don't really I'm not really one of those I'm a real mover on yeah. you know I'm not someone who like get stuck in like, oh, why did I do that? Or, you know, I just, I just kind of like, okay, move forward, move forward, move forward. You know, we always used to say with my dog Scarlett, like, you know, she would always just sit there and, you know, Scarlett, you adored her. She would sit there and she would naturally have a chin up. We were always, Doug and I, our family motto is chin up, move forward, you know, just. So, you know, I think I've done a pretty good job of appreciating every step of the way. So I, but I also think that might be my nature. Like I'm a, I was born an optimist. So, you know, it's not so much that I would say do necessarily different. It just sort of almost slowing it down and enjoying it even more, you know, yeah. even the shitty bits that, that where we grow from, realizing that those, those are moments for growth, you know. Absolutely. It's the most painful parts of it often in retrospect are the times that you needed to yeah. get there. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so I wouldn't change those I wouldn't, looking back, I, even though it would have been easier to not have those, those <laughs> The times, agony. The yeah. agony. It's like when you, you know, dated 
all the wrong people I dated in my 20s. You know, in a way, they, I can't regret them because they helped me find the right, the right, what yeah. I did want in mm-hmm. life, you know. But I wasted so much time wondering if those things were going to work out. It's, it's a perfect comparison, <laughs> really. Dating and career path. And we always refer to it as the snowball. And it's like you just build in your snowball and build in your snowball and you're pushing it up a hill and you're pushing up a hill. And eventually... You get up to the top, and then it starts rolling down the other side of the hill. But that means that you peaked. So, like, yeah, enjoy the push-up. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> because exactly. Because otherwise you're just rolling downhill. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Every, yeah, enjoy every step of the way. I would try to find something in every step of the way, you know, that... Yeah, I mean, I, I know it's so cheesy, but I truly believe the journey is the destination. The last few years have been really hard on so many levels. And I wondered what this difficult time has taught you and how you are carrying that into your work and processes in the future. Well, I think for many artists, our job is to take things that are difficult and try and make something that makes sense of it in the form of art, whether it's a piece of music or a novel or a painting or a photograph. So I actually feel like artists are perhaps the most prepared for pandemics. (laughs) I mean, I know it sounds nuts, but I really do think that, you know, that that's we've been sort of struggling with things that we don't quite understand or too enormous. You know, I think that's almost an artist's job is to... They were already behind the curtain when (laughs) the curtain was pulled. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I, I, um, you know, in many ways it has been, you know, obviously it's been this crazy time. But in in a way, it solidified for me my sense of purpose with my work. I like I knew I knew I always wanted to make things that were sensory about you know what it is to feel fragile about you know the what makes us human, the difficult business of being human and having senses and you know what's the opposite of that? It's dying, you know. So, but and and for me, like COVID almost sort of solidified that that you know this idea of like this is a privilege to be able to live and we need to seize the day on it and not wait and not, you know, take things for granted. So that's sort of like the core of my of my sort of central themes anyway as an artist. And so COVID was like, well, Christ, if not now, when, yeah. you know? And I, But I think that's similar for many artists that, you know, we are perhaps quite well, well primed to, to live in a world of... That is uncertain. If you think about also some great literature, they've often come out of times of of difficulty. I wondered if you wanted to share any exciting new projects that you have in the works. And obviously I'll have all of your like social media and website and stuff attached to the blog post. But any exciting things that you have going on in the upcoming future? Well, I'm hard at work on my new book which will be a sequel, it'll be a diptych part of to Blue Violet, which has done really well, um, which came out almost a year ago um, and has, is actually now in its third printing. We're about wow, to go into third. its third printing. I know, Amazing. I know, it's really, it's wonderful. I feel, and I'll always think of Blue Violet as my sort of COVID book in many ways, you know, getting yeah. up, you know, I, we, we moved on from that when we were talking about, but when, after the Times, that Times article, I then started getting up at four o'clock in the morning to make my work, to have my quiet, creative time. So, you know, I found a way to get it, even though, you know, the family dynamic was 
completely shifted and then things got back to normal but so I have that coming up so you know hard at work on the uh, the sequel to that and then I have a show in Amsterdam in September at Bildhouse Gallery and I'm going to do some sound work with that which I'm really excited so I was telling you Alyssa earlier that I um, just had my first vocal uh, vocal my first vocal uh, <laughs> you desperately need it I do, I do. <laughs> my first vocal lesson um, to you know how to read you know it's it's I never knew whether do I put emphasis on the wrong syllable you know I didn't know how to do it I was awkward and I've never taken acting lessons or anything like that so um, I'm going to make these sound showers in the gallery so that's going to be a new experience I don't quite know how I'm going to do it yet but I'm excited to learn so those are some things coming up and also I just want to have a really great summer in Maine don't you oh gosh I mean dreaming of it I just feel like yeah, it's been so hard because usually the winters here are very insular and and quiet and and you do a lot of work and torture yourself a little bit. <laughs> and then the summers are very social and fun and they like they fill up all of the like the introverts extrovert needs and then you like storm up like a like a squirrel and then and then you go back in but having basically two summers of covid and not yeah. really getting to see people as much or do the same things that you're used to it's feels like my my nut Storage. Not very my nut storage. Remember the squirrel metaphor? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I don't have any more nuts left. <laughs> I need some social time. Just yes. a bit. Oh, you tell me we're gonna have a wild summer. I hope so. Thank you so much, Sig. Oh, of course. I've loved it. <laughs> I yeah, I just feel really, you know, this project is my voice. Yeah. And it started from photography and it's built into something else. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that journey takes you down winding roads. But you have been so supportive to me through this project and had many a brick wall meltdown moment of (laughs) confidence boosting and (laughs) direction and help. And yeah, so it's just a pleasure to have you on here and an honor. Um, it's such an honor. I love you, Alyssa. And it's been extraordinary to watch this, watch Urban Exodus grow. And, you know, this is your purpose. And to bring voices that I hadn't heard, ideas that I hadn't heard before and bring it to uh, a public forum. I mean, it is the, it is, it's the good work you're doing. And it's a real honor to be here. Thank you, Sig, for joining us on the show. Some of my key takeaways from this episode. Finding your unique voice through the work is more valuable for emerging artists than networking. Creating art that speaks to others through your own uniqueness will open up the doors that you want. The importance of time and space cannot be overstated as an artist. They honestly can't be overstated for anything. Finding time and space for your mind to think is incredibly helpful. Art that is beautiful is not frivolous. Beauty is powerful. Beauty can be used as a way to draw attention so that more difficult messages may be conveyed. Nature can heal and it can inspire. The importance of place, solitude, and peace are valuable ingredients to creating work you're proud of. Find the place that makes you feel the most alive and figure out a way to get yourself there. 
Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Urban Exodus podcast. This project is made possible by listener support. I do this work because the people I meet through this project give me hope for the future. And I think we could all use a little more motivation and inspiration in this current moment in history. All of the work that I do through this project is to encourage people to believe in themselves and to work towards a better future for their community and for our planet. Your continued support will keep this passion project running. The easiest way to contribute is to click the support button on the top of urbanexodus.com and pledge any amount that you like. Or you can buy an ad spot in an upcoming episode, shop our online store of rurally made goods, or join our Patreon community for access to bonus features, rapid fire interviews with podcast guests, videos, live presentations, and so much more. Visit patreon.com slash urban exodus. Another way to support is by giving us a five-star rating on iTunes and recommending Urban Exodus to your friends. Thank you again for helping me continue to do this work. I couldn't do this without all of you. You can find Urban Exodus on Instagram and Facebook at The Urban Exodus. To read more in-depth features on folks who ditched the city and went country, visit urbanexodus.com. Until next time, I'm Alyssa Hessler, and this is The Urban Exodus. Thank you.